Well, it's been sweet <laughs> to be back in Abu Dhabi and to be back here at ECC. What a flood of memories every time I turn a corner, every time I walk into the building, every time I see a face I recognize. Uh, I haven't recognized or remembered as many names as I should have remembered, but uh, thank you for being gracious when I um, can't recall a name. But it's been just a wonderful treat, wonderful privilege to be back, to, be, um, to connect again with people that we knew, uh, and also to be connected with people we didn't know and chance to meet them. Um, there are just so many connections here. When the, when the scripture reading comes from Tanzania, which is where I was born, uh, I feel connected in this international church. Um, and it's just been a wonderful privilege. This will be our last time with you. We leave tomorrow, we go to Dubai, and then early Tuesday morning we fly out back to our home in Oregon. So, let's do what we do here at ECC, which is study the scripture together. Let me pray before we look into God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. And now do it once again in a way, Lord, that grips our hearts and uh, impacts our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible tells us that we are all made in the image of God and that we were created for relationship with God. And whether it's acknowledged or not, or suppressed, or whatever it is, I believe every human being has an ache in heart that can only be filled by a relationship with God. Now, I, I recognize fully that many people don't acknowledge it. They don't even acknowledge that God exists, but I believe that to come to that place they have to suppress something deep in their hearts. But with that longing for God, there's also a sense of alienation. How do we approach God? Um, where is he? Where do we find him? And how do we come into relationship with him? And that's really my topic, my theme this morning. I'm going to do it in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to do it by comparing God to a mountain. Now, one of the things that intrigues me about mountains is the fact that they have a way of changing their shape, depending on where you stand and, and which face of the mountain you approach him with. I grew up in Kenya on the edge of the Rift Valley. In front of our house was a perfectly formed volcano or caldera called Mount Longanot. And from our viewpoint, high on the escarpment, we could actually look down partway into the crater. And when I think of Longanot, what's Longanot look like? That's the image that always comes to my mind. But there were times when we would drive down into the valley to the town of Naivasha, and as we drove, the shape of Mount Longanot would change. And when we got down to to the lake there, we would look back at Mount Longanot, and it didn't look like a crater at all. It looked like a plateau with a sharp peak rising on the right-hand side. Other times, we would drive towards the town of Narok, and the mountain would change shape again. And now, again, we couldn't see the crater, and now we could see the plateau, but now the peak was on the left. 
So here's my question. What does wrong or not look like? What's the correct view of Mount Wangana? Well, you would say, well, all of them. It's one mountain. We're just looking at it from different viewpoints. Now, the faces of a mountain are particularly relevant to climbers. I've never been a mountain climber. I've read some books by mountain climbers, and, and they describe the fact that there are different faces of the mountain, and different faces require different skill levels to climb. There are some faces that are easy, approachable. Just simply a long hike will get you to the top. Other faces are steep and rugged and require special equipment, special training. And then there are other faces of maybe the same mountain that are simply unclimbable. They're just too hard, too high, too dangerous. But they're all part of the same mountain. So how is God like a mountain? Well, for one thing, he's high and lifted up. You have to look up, spiritually speaking, to see him. He inspires awe and worship. And like a mountain, I believe God has many faces. And theologians call them his attributes. They're characteristics of God revealed to us in the Bible. We might say, we do say, God is holy. God is just. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. God is sovereign. God is love. And the list goes on and on. And these faces of God do not reveal different gods. They reveal different perspectives on the same one God. You say, well, which is the correct one? Which is my favorite one? Uh, all of them. And we have to take God whole. We're not allowed to chop him up into pieces, even though he reveals himself sometimes in different ways. But if we're going to worship him, we worship the whole God, the one God, the true God. And as we are faced with some of his different faces and different attributes, we find ourselves responding in different ways. Let me use an illustration. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah was given a vision of God seated on his throne, high and lifted up. It was a scene of incredible beauty. And as Moses, or excuse me, as Isaiah looked at that, he heard the uh, seraphim, the angels surrounded him, and they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. What was Isaiah's response? He was terrified. He fell on his face and cried, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a man of a people of unclean lips. You see, when, when Isaiah was faced with this face of God, he recognized very clearly God was holy, and he was not. We can picture a mountain climber who has this urgent need to get to the top of the mountain, and yet he's facing a cliff with no cracks, no fissures, no handholds, no footholds, no way to climb it. He might be in awe of the, of the cliff, but ultimately he cannot approach it by that face. And there are other faces of God which may inspire fear as well as awe. There, 
unapproachable faces. For example, the Bible speaks of the wrath of God. God's wrath is his holiness and responding to our sin. And the Bible pronounces another metaphor. He says, our God is a consuming fire. We have some pretty terrible forest fires in our part of Northwest in America. You don't approach a consuming fire. You run from it. You're frightened by it. And we stand at the foot of this face of God and we're moved to respond with Isaiah, woe is me, woe is me. There are other attributes of God that may not inspire fear, but, but they're unfathomable nonetheless. Consider the attribute of God's absolute sovereignty. There's not a thing that happens out of his control, not a sparrow that falls to the ground. He's in control of it all. And we look at our world and we try, God, what are you doing? We have difficulty understanding and grasping that sovereignty of God. It may be and should be, I believe, a, a comforting doctrine, but it's also a puzzling one as we try to come to grips with this God who has created us. What about the attribute of God's wisdom and his omniscience? Bible declares that God knows all things. He's all wise. And yet if we try to approach him with a goal of understanding him, we always fall short. We can't figure God out. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and your, my thoughts than your thoughts. The psalmist considers it in Psalm 139, contemplates the omniscience of God and says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So even though we may worship God at that face, we cannot ultimately understand him or figure him out or enter into relationship with him by our minds and our thoughts alone. There's another way in which God can be compared to a mighty mountain. The world's tallest mountains have the power to create their own weather. We lived as many years in Alaska. Many people come to Alaska because they want to see Mount Denali, which is the tallest mountain on the North American continent. And they come and they are excited to see it and they might stay a day, two days, and a week and never see it because it's covered with clouds. Clouds that cluster around the peak. We're told that God has a way at times of hiding himself like a giant mountain. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that he dwells in unapproachable light. Exodus 19.21 says that Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. God is majestic, but he's also mysterious. He appears when and how he chooses. He is sovereign in that manner. Now, when the people of Israel left Egypt, they were led by God into the desert and eventually to the foot of a mountain called Mount Sinai. Now, in this account, God does not appear as a mountain. He reveals himself on the mountain. And as he does so, several of his faces or attributes are on clear display. He reveals himself, first of all, and it's really the first occurrence of the 
whole concept of holiness in the whole scripture. Did you know the word holy doesn't appear in the book of Genesis? It occurs in Exodus when Moses is told to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. But the real concept and understanding of holiness comes into focus in the stories at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the first thing they found out was there was a barrier put around the, the mountain and, and the people were told, don't cross that barrier because if you touch that mountain, you'll die. And then if your animals that get through and touch that mountain, they'll die. Now God's holiness is a fear producing attribute. It should be, if we understand it correctly. It's his absolute holiness, his absolute separation from sin, and his absolute unwillingness in any way to mix with that which is sinful. Don't touch the mountain. Then the people were told to wash their clothes and get as clean as they could in preparation for God to come down upon the mountain. And, and God came down to meet with the people there, and there was smoke, and there was fire, and there was the blast of a trumpet that grew louder and louder. And then we're told that God spoke in an audible voice, and the people heard him speak. Now, we might be inclined to say, oh, I wish I'd been there. Wish I could have seen that. Wish I could have experienced that. Probably not, because you know how the people responded? They were terrified. Once again, they understood that this was, in many ways, an unapproachable God. They stood far off. They said to Moses, Moses, you speak to us. You tell us what God said, but don't let God speak again. We'll die. They drew back and were afraid to approach. And God is awe-inspiring, even fear-producing in many aspects. Just as many of the world's mountains have their unclimbable faces, he is not a tame God who becomes what we want him to be. He is the God of the universe who reveals himself to us. And we are asked to worship him whole in all of his faces. He's a tame, not a tame God. He cannot be fit in the boxes of our own making. He cannot be contained in neat doctrinal statements. He is not even fully contained in the creeds of the church, as important as they are. He's too big. He's too awesome. He's too mysterious. If you've ever tried to take a picture, a close-up picture of a great mountain, what do you get? Little blocks and pieces. It's the same way when we try to wrap God into our words and our statements. Try to figure God out. He's always surprising us. He's always breaking out. Just as soon as we figure we've got something about God figured out, he breaks out in scripture in some new passage, some new truth. And you say, wow, I didn't see that coming. He's always full of surprises. But I've been talking so far about God in the sense of many of his unapproachable faces. So let's go back to that introduction statement I made, this longing we have to be close to this God, to be on that mountain with him, next to him, to fulfill that longing of our hearts, to know that which, for which we were created, which is relationship with God. 
And I want to talk a little bit now about the approachable face of God. And it's clear, even in that Sinai account with all the fear and all the pyrotechnics, that God had something else in mind. Exodus 19.4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Those are relational words, aren't they? I carried you. I picked you up. I bore you on eagles' wings, and I did it all to bring you here to me. I brought you here to the foot of the mountain because I want to meet with you on a relationship with you. Goes on 5 and 6, says, You shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Wow, that's what God wants. You see, not only do we have a longing for relationship with God, but God longs to have a relationship with us. And he did all of that to bring this nation. He said, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be a kingdom of priests. Beautiful images. But you say, well, how do we reconcile that with the fear and the trembling? How do we reconcile that with the holiness of God that led to Isaiah's despair? Well, we must find the approachable face of God. Because you see, for all of these unapproachable faces, when we look at God's holiness as justice, as wrath, there's also an approachable face. And we find it here in this very scripture. In Isaiah 33, 18, Moses makes an audacious request. He says to God, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. This was after they'd had the mountains shake and the thunder roll and the the lightning flash. Moses says, I want to see more. I want to know you better. And God says, okay, I'll do that. But I can't show it all. It'll kill you, but I'll show you just what you're able to understand. You come up here on the mountain, you sit here in this cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by. You won't see my face, but you'll experience a measure of my glory. And this is what happened. We're told in 34, 5 to 7, the Lord, that's all capitals there, which means it's Yahweh. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God. Now here's the approachable face of God. A God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in that cluster of adjectives and attributes, we see the approachable face of God. And it's an exceptionally rich vocabulary. Merciful is the showing of favor rather than punishment, even when punishment is deserved. Second word, gracious. Not as common in the Old Testament as it is in the New, but whenever it's used, this adjective is only used to describe God. And the Essence of the word itself in the Hebrew is one who hears the cry of the needy and the penitent. We're also told he's slow to anger. 
That's just plain words. It, it, he doesn't get angry quickly. It doesn't say he doesn't get angry. just says he gives time for repentance. He's slow to anger. He reveals himself in steadfast love, loyal love, covenant love, committed love to those that belong to him. And he's full of faithfulness, reliability, dependability, and loyalty. And above all, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He carries away, lifts them up, bears away, and then that's followed by the cluster of the three most common words for sin in the Old Testament. All of that, he says, I'll take it away. That's who I am. That's the kind of God I am when you come to my approachable face. These are all God's own words describing himself to Moses when Moses said, show me your glory. This is the glory of God revealed in the approachable face of God. And this revelation of God's character became a foundation stone for the faith of old covenant believers. It formed the basis of many of their prayers of intercession and petition that we find in the Old Testament. They came because they knew where the penitent or the approachable face of God was. Let me give you some examples. In Numbers chapter 14, the people of Israel had rebelled against God, refused to enter the promised land out of fear, and were about to appoint another leader to lead them back to Egypt. And God was angry. The face of God was an angry face. And he said, I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses, the great intercessor, stood up and said, God, don't do it. Because, now listen to this, please, he said, Numbers 14, 17 to 19, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, now don't, or listen to these words and see if you haven't heard them before. You said, in other words, Yahweh is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And Moses appeals to the approachable face of God with almost the same words that God spoke to him on the mountain. These words became the foundation for prayers in the Psalms. If you look at how David prays in Psalm 86, 15, he says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who you are, God. I'm coming to your approachable face we see it in the writing of the prophets in Joel 2.13. It says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And over and over again, the Old Testament saints knew where to go when they were in trouble. They came to the approachable face of God, and they said, God, you said that you were merciful. You said you were gracious. You said you were full of steadfast love, and you said you'd forgive our sin. And God would do it. But maybe you noticed something when I read that passage from Exodus. You might have noticed I didn't finish it. I didn't read it all the way to the end. <clears throat> I'm going to do that now. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And here's the part I didn't read. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So you say, wait a minute, which is it? Is he approachable or not? Does he forgive or does he not forgive? Which face of the mountain am I facing here? And which one is the true face of God? We're conflicted. It doesn't seem like the last part matches the first part. It's the same way when you face a mountain. Is it a steep or is it one I can climb? But there's another reason, I think, that these two parts of this passage do not <clears throat> ultimately conflict. Because what God says in the first part of the verse, he says, I will forgive your sins and your iniquities. But it's been impressed on me recently by the Spirit of God as I've pondered these things. Many people, and maybe we're among them, don't want a God who will forgive sins. We want a God who will tolerate sins. And those are two very different things. The first part of the verse says, I will forgive. The second part of these verses says, I will not tolerate. And if you don't come to me by the approachable face, my angry face remains. It hasn't gone anywhere. We don't come to God to say, just overlook this. Just tolerate this. We must come to God because we recognize we've sinned and we need his forgiveness. But so far, we've been in the Old Testament considering Old Testament evidence and vocabulary. And when we turn to the New Testament, we find some that the same attributes on display. I want to consider and focus especially, especially on grace. As I said, the word grace, the Hebrew word I referred to before, is not used that commonly. When it is used, it's used specifically of God himself. But when we move to the New Testament, suddenly we find grace is on full display. And the focus of so much of what is revealed there. It's part of, an essential part of the New Testament message. Grace, the free gift of God's favor to those who deserve wrath or punishment. We're told by grace you are saved through faith. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.8, it's the gift of God. In Acts 20, 24, Paul refers to his ministry as testifying to the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God, the good news about the approachable face of God. And in the New Testament, the revelation of God's approachable face begins to take a more specific focus, and we might say it focuses on a face. Not the face of a mountain now but the face of God himself 
in human flesh. John 1, 14 to 18, these words, and the word, referring to Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember Moses said, show me your glory. Here it is, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known and he's made him known as a God of grace, a God who is approachable, a God to whom we can come. And now when we put this Old Testament and New Testament truth together, we are approaching the heart of the gospel message. And in the imagery of my sermon this morning, I believe we can express it this way. Jesus is the approachable face of God. He is the way to the top of the mountain. He is the way to fellowship and relationship with God. And in this passage, it's intriguing. The Israelites stood at the foot of the mountain and trembled in fear. The law was given through Moses and it brought condemnation. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We might put it this way. At Sinai, God came down to the top of the mountain and the people trembled. At Bethlehem, Jesus came down to the foot of the mountain and stood among his people. And he said, come, come, come to me. I am the approachable face of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the Apostle Peter expressed it this way to the religious leaders in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. This is God's approachable face. And he's provided a way to come into fellowship with him. But he's only provided one way. Just one. He didn't have to provide any. One way. The thunder still roars. The lightning still flashes. The fear of God should still be in the heart of every man or woman who refuses to come to God by the way that he has provided. But there is a way, an approachable way to God. You say, well, what about those verses, those unapproachable verses that he visits the iniquity on all the generations and so on? Was that, were those faces of God just kind of wiped out? Is, is, is there a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament? The, is the anger of God gone? Is the wrath of God gone? Has the holiness of God been compromised? No. Those truths are still there and they still have the power and should inspire fear. God hasn't changed. His standards haven't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. So you say, well, if he's that scary, if he's that fear-inspiring, what, how do we get to him? Well, we have to come to Christ. I believe there's one more thing here. We have to come to Christ with the right attitude and frame of mind. I think the story is most clearly told in Jesus' story of the parable, the two men who came to pray in the temple. And you had the Pharisee who stood up and said, God, you're sure lucky to have me. I've done wonderful things for you. I'm doing all the right things. Here I am. And then there's the other man, the tax collector, the sinner. What did he do? He was off in a corner. He didn't even dare lift his face towards God. He simply beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus conclude from that parable? Which one went home justified before God? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the, sec, the tax collector. So we not only have to come to the face of God, the approachable face of God, but we have to come humbly, repentantly, acknowledging our sin. And the other thing that's really been impressed on my heart and mind in recent months through my own prayer and so on is, is a distinction. I think in the church, we talk too much about sins and not enough about sin. Why do I say that? When we talk about sins, all the different bad things that people do and we do, we're really just talking about the symptoms of a disease. The disease is sin. And it's that essential heart rebellion that seeks to live autonomously apart from God and his will. And until we acknowledge that that's our problem, we're never going to see the need to come to the approachable face of God. We're going to stand there with that Pharisee and say, I can do it myself, and I'll do it my way. And God isn't impressed. The holy God still is unapproachable from that path. You may think you can climb that mountain that way, but you're not going to make it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there is an approachable face for the sinner, for the tax collector, who says, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and who comes seeking the forgiveness of sins, not the tolerance of sin but the forgiveness that God offers. Now that is truth essential to our gospel to fill that longing of our hearts to know God. But there's a further truth here when we talk about the approachable faiths of God. Jesus is not only our path to salvation, but he also remains the approachable face of God in our times of need in our times of discouragement, and our times of despair. I know Pastor Aubrey's been leading you in a study in the book of Hebrews, doing an excellent job with it, and you'll be familiar with these verses, but I just want to call them to your attention in this context. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being 
tempted. So his sacrifice is the one that not only revealed the approachable face or path to God, but made it possible through his death. But even more than that, going on to Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Jesus, our sacrifice, saying to us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the takeaway from this message, very simply, thinking of God as a mountain, the next time you see a mountain, think of God. <laughs> Look at his face. Look at his faces. Think about the different attributes of God that he's revealed to us. But always come back to the approachable face of God. Jesus is that approachable face. Not only for our salvation, but, but when we're in need. When our hearts are timid, filled with fear. When our hearts are shamed, feeling guilty and despair for some sin that we've done. Or when we're weighed down with sadness, with a heart of loss for some tragic entity or something that's happened in our lives. Jesus is the approachable face of God. He says, I know what you're feeling. I've been there. You can come to me. You can come to me and find mercy, find grace to help you in your time of need. So I don't know which aspect of this sermon today you needed to hear. Maybe you're far from God and still under the judgment of God. Maybe you're finding your way to him slowly, little by little. Maybe you've walked in the Lord, with the Lord for many years, and life's tough right now. And you need to come and find the help and mercy you can. He is the approachable face of God. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, for each heart here this morning, you know each one. You know the need, you know the ache, you know the, the joy and the fullness of your spirit that can overcome and overwhelm us at times. Thank you, Lord, that for all of your faces, all of your attributes, we worship you. We worship you in your holiness. We worship you in your wrath and your anger and your justice. We worship you in your mercy and your kindness. We mercy, worship you in your forgiveness of sins through the blood of the Lord Jesus. Might we worship you in your wholeness, for you are God, and we bow before you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.